This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican in London. Welcome, everybody. I came back last night on a plane from Shanghai, uh, so I am really fired up to speak about uh, strident developments and, uh, and indeed aggressive growth. Um, but here in the UK, the planning laws appear to want to trip up every form of development, either large or small. And um, whilst the government says that its intention is to liberalise those planning laws, um, I, it's open to question the extent to which that would have uh, an impact on housing developments. And indeed, uh, many will say it would be extremely un undesirable to do so. So we're here to discuss that. <coughs> With me, I have um, Professor Kelvin Campbell, who's the, the owner of Smart Urbanism, and is the author of Massive Small, the Smart Operating System for Smart Urbanism, the Operating System for, for Smart Urbanism. Many of you uh, may well be the member of, uh, of Kelvin's website presence, which is a, an extremely large and influential uh, discussion group about the future for urbanism in this country. Of course, many of you will also know uh, Kelvin from his uh, leadership of the consulting company Urban Initiatives uh, for many years. Then um, Penny Lewis, the master's course leader at Scott Sutherland School of Architecture at the Robert Gordon University and the co-founder of the AE Foundation. <coughs> On my uh, immediate left, Paul Miner, who's the senior planning officer at the Campaign to Protect Rural England. Then Christine Murray, who is the editor of the Architects' Journal. And then finally, uh, on, my, on my far left, Daniel Moylan, who is the avi aviation advisor to the London Mayor and also a Conservative councillor at the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. So uh, that's the panel. Yes, I'm going to, um, to, uh, to keep a strict eye on time, but Kelvin, if you could, uh, if you could uh, make any points that you'd like to, to, to start us off. Okay. Just to start off, I'm in favour of to build. I think the debate is about to build or not to build. Um, I'm just in favour of making sure we build in the right, the right way. Um, I also believe that what we've been doing recently has worked against the principle of good urbanism. So the, the concept of mass of small is really about how do we re release the collective power of lots of small things that happen to make a big difference. The main principle is how does planning behave or how does planning change in a, in a new bottom-up world? Um, I, I think clearly it has to move from a command and control position, which it's been occupying for years, into much more of an enabling type position. And what we're talking about here is effectively how do we stimulate or accelerate house building uh, at a time where we're building less housing uh, than during the Second World War and we were being bombed in the Second World War. So there's an interesting sort of dilemma about housing and, ha and housing delivery. I think the first thing is to move away from the concept of housing and talk about neighborhoods rather. And I think we've been seeing housing as sort of a product design kind of exercise rather than something which is much more about building social capital and, and places. Um, three stumbling blocks were identified by uh, Professor Michael Ball. Um, the first stumbling block to recovery was the planning system, clearly. The second was we're not achieving any economies of scale that come from replicability. And we have an incredible legacy of fantastic house building or fantastic neighborhood building um, across the, the past couple of centuries. And we kind of lost the sense of what that, what that means. And I think the third one is steady release of land to a, to a much wider market. Uh, too much land goes through... Um, fairly strong competitive dialogue processes ends up in one or two, three major, uh, major house builders' hands, and effectively it holds us to ransom because these projects never seem to happen. Now, clearly there is an issue of finance, 
But the biggest issue for me is how do we achieve housing that's far more affordable rather than branding it affordable housing? And that actually means that we have to move to different systems, different ways of looking at how we deliver housing. There's been a lot of work that's taken place on low-density, high-family housing, a lot on high-density, low-family housing, but very little that's happened in that sweet spot of London, which is the medium-density, high-family house that probably most of us live in. Given all the legislation, there's something like 2,600 bits of legislation on the design of a house. Um, Given all that legislation, three architects, three some of the best architects, uh, given uh, slightly different briefs, come up with exactly the same products. In other words, same same solutions to, to the way we do housing. So why don't we just take this and say, well, this represents a default condition for us. If it's good enough, why don't we define housing in terms of good typologies, good ways that we move forward? And that's always been a history of, of how we've done things. Housing has always been typologically based. So what we need is to try and define what I think is a choice architecture. In other words, a way in which we can make conscious choices about design, which enables us to choose the default if we want or to choose to, to modify the default. And uh, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the default condition here today. I'm not talking about the special and I recognize that there's always room for specials when we, when we do places. But specials are only good when they're represented against the backdrop of, of the ordinary or the conventional or the, or the normal. We've been working on the London Popular Home Initiative, which really looks at a, a way of in, in looking at parameter housing or parameter-based housing to release the potential of planning briefs, building standards, and the use of enabling developers. And through that, we believe we can achieve fast-track planning, much more of an open building system, and open up wider market choice to a much, much wider group of people. The other thing we have to do is we have to break some of these large problem sites of ours into what I call problem, problem molehills. And the only way we do that is to break them into bite-sized chunks. Too often a master plan just leads to another master plan and yet another master plan. And we've often, re- we've often re- referred to the Royal Docks as having 71 master plans. Uh, the reason is that we don't have any way of moving these things forward unless they're built. And therefore they just resort to the next, the next level. So my plea is some sort of structure that enables us to break some of these bigger things into smaller smaller elements that enable us to move forward. In planning, given all that legislation I mentioned, the 2,600 bits of regulation I mentioned, besides all the bits of guidance, we come up with looking at a large site, and the ultimate outcome of a planning process is a single, a single outcome. In other words, through that whole process, in most instances, takes about a year for a, um, a planning scheme of about less than 20 houses. It can, it can take up to two years for a planning scheme of greater than, greater than 20 houses. And that's the average that's been reflected at the moment. If we took a much more different approach around the use of parameter, parameter-based planning, uh, we could achieve much more flexible outcomes. In other words, allowing the market to determine, allowing us to be much more flexible in the way in which we, at, we, we, we approach planning. Um, we've been exploring the use of local development orders. There's no reason why, once you have a parameter book, there's no reason why you can't use local development orders, which basically permit development to happen. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that it's anti-democratic. In fact, by, putting in, by controlling the parameter book, local authorities have much more control about the outcome, and therefore that's the way in which they can release the, 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 ease the way through the planning system. We are exploring the possibility of a guaranteed outcome of 13 weeks at the moment. That's what we're supposed to achieve is 13 weeks. No one ever achieves 13 weeks. So we're looking at an outcome that guarantees 13 weeks and working with six London boroughs, uh, a number of uh, large um, contractors and, and um, housing associations as well to see where we can achieve this. And the next main issue is, I suppose everyone recognizes iPod as, as the sort of the successful thing that, that was created that, that enabled us to download music. But it wasn't Apple that achieved that. It was the MP3, the audio standard that achieved that. And we need that similar sort of standard in the building industry, something that achieves a standard that we can build on, a platform we can build on, that enables us to move forward. We don't have that because everything reverts back to first principles. 
Someone referred to our house building industry as a cottage industry on steroids the other day. And it's to do with the roots and the understanding of how and where the, the, the house building industries come from. If we saw uh, the, the house much more like a kitchen cabinet, uh, a way in which we could um, assemble things, um, we could take advantage of what the Danish, Danish Building Institute showed recently, which is 40% of all the savings in housing comes from um, modular coordination, just simple modular standards that, that enable you to, to move forward on things. It doesn't mean everything is standard. It means that there are certain standards that exist within housing that enable us to move forward. Um, the planned outcome we're looking for is something like 30% increase in efficiency. Currently, uh, we're 40 to 55% less efficient than the Swedish building industry. We're looking for a 20% savings in building costs. Currently, our housing is 40% more expensive than our competitors in mainland Europe. And we're looking for a multiplier effect, a local economic multiplier effect, so we keep money in a community as well to make this happen. And then finally, on, on wider market choice, um, I'm concerned uh, that the government policy on custom build will result in custom build or self-builders going out into a field somewhere and doing their things. And in fact, the strength of cities is when you have diversity, when you really want the, the local guys to come into an area and work, and they're the ones that project, produce the unpredictability, make a place quite special. So I'll stop there. Okay, Thank you very thanks, much. Calvin, that's great. Okay, Penny. Okay, like Mick, I've been in China, so forgive me if I'm a bit, sound like I'm on Prozac or something, so I feel like I'm slowing down at the moment. Um, China's a good place to confront this question, to build or not to build, uh, and it seems inevitable when you're in China that they should build, because there's a very clearly expressed demand. And then you <coughs> draw comparisons with what is happening in Britain, and you feel much more ambiguous about the question of development. So <clears throat> as a result of that experience of going somewhere else where building seems to respond to a very clear social need and returning to a country in which staying in the city of London last night, you can see the spectacular possibilities of good good building. I've just uh, put together some slightly abstract thoughts on this question. Of course, yes, to build. The question is what to build and where, where to build is the question facing us in the UK at the moment. And I think one of the difficulties of addressing this issue, um, particularly for the discussion in architecture, is that there's often a real conflation and confusion of the difference between the question of identifying a need, which is a political and social question, and the imagination that goes into generating a, a practical solution to a problem, which is an architectural and an urbanistic issue. So if anything, that's my sort of theme for the day, if you like, that we, in, before we start to say this is a possibility of the way we might organize the production of new housing or this is a, an ideal urbanistic form through which we can deliver uh, mixed-use housing, I think we need to be a bit mature and reflect upon um, the different kinds of issues that are thrown up within the political and social sphere <coughs> and through the realm of design, because they're two different things. Take the housing question, for example. So this is not uh, a new thing within the political sphere. Engels writes about the housing question uh, in the 1880s. And you can see at that point, he's very clearly identifying an urbanistic and social dynamic, which throws out the need uh, for an entirely new attitude towards the provision of homes for the working class. A hundred years later, we're posed with the same problem, a housing question. But at that point, you can see that the question of the delivery of housing is now entirely integrated into the workings of financial capital within the British economy. And so it becomes incredibly complicated. So you can't really 
think about the housing question as an abstract design question. There needs to be a sort of prior understanding of the relationship between the production of housing and the social and economic framework in which it sits. That said, understanding the context and understanding the mechanisms and the forces that act in order to determine what we produce for housing and, and how we produce it, that understanding needs to be something that's separated. One of the things I really love about architects is that they can be incredibly naive. So they can put forward a proposition of how we might live and how we might resolve the very real housing issue today in the southeast of England, and it can bear very little relationship to the social and political context. And that can be a very useful and positive thing that they make that separation, I think, because they uh, are imagining the possibility of delivering something that people need without recourse to the constraints that we know that exist in terms of the procurement process and the financing and rents and everything else that exists within the, the question of housing. So while I'm keen that discussions separate the social, political and architectural, I'm also keen that in a way architecture and urbanism has a certain autonomy from those things. It understands them and it can also operate and imagine um, something that's different from the constraints posed by the economic situation. Okay, so that's, that's my first point. I've got one other point. So it's good to dream about the possibility of something different, and I think that's what the architectural profession in particular bring to this discussion, more, I must say, than urbanists, if you like, because they tend to be tied more into the political framework of things. And sometimes they come nowhere close to delivering what's imagined as an ideal situation. But often the best work that's produced in Britain at the moment has a kernel of the idea of what might be the appropriate way um, to produce housing, which I think is a very positive thing, and students and young architects and uh, designers should be encouraged to engage in the things at that level. The danger, of course, is that through imagining how we might live, and an idealised version of how we might live, that we overstate the possibility of using design and using urbanism as a way of changing the very nature and core of our social relations. So this is my, my second point, if you like, is that in the process of thinking about should we build, what should we build, where should we build, I think that there's a problem entered into the dialogue where we overstate the case of what can be achieved through urban strategies and through urban design. A sense of place, a sense of community, a sense of identity, a sense of historical continuity, all of these issues, it is claimed, can be resolved by architects and urban designers and planners. And I think that's a real problem for us at the moment, that this idea that somehow through bricks and mortar we can reconstruct a social world. So yes, I think we should build to meet a need, and yes, I think we should engage in an imaginary discussion about what would be the ideal, but no, I don't think that we should imagine that this process can actually be a substitute for the construction of real, normal uh, social relations in society, just by building a public space, just by introducing a mixed-use development, just by organising blind rent, rental and tenancy systems, we do not resolve the problems of social dislocation and alienation in contemporary society. Andre Branzi, the Italian neo-rationalist, talked about dismissal. He said, actually, it's a weird thing at the moment because we live in a weak modernity. And in this weak modernity, you see that um, we are living in places where we used to work and we're working in places where we used to live. And actually, the formation of the city is a pretty arbitrary process that's taking place in which 
everything that we have left in the city, the, the existing fabric of the city, is a problem because it doesn't actually meet contemporary needs and contemporary programs. And therefore, we should have a very liberal attitude uh, towards planning regulations. We should just imagine great big new structures and great big new ideas about how we might build and remake the city. And at the very same time, when he was doing this, and ArchiZoom were around and Super Studio, etc. Okay, Aldo Rossi argued for continuity. Both of those issues are relevant today. Um, uh, and I think what I like to talk about within the profession as a whole is uh, how we uh, address both of those issues. Thanks, Penny. Okay, Paul. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Michael. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to argue that we should plan and then build what we need to a high standard and respecting that our irreplaceable countryside is a legitimate constraint on building just anywhere. Our landscape and historic landscape are one of the main reasons why people want to come to this country and live and invest here. And you'll see from the work of Richard Florida in particular that that's a pattern across the world. It's, it's a big influence on how people make investment decisions. So careful planning will reinforce the, the beauty of England and Britain and will encourage economic growth at the same time. Indiscriminate, poorly planned building will destroy that. Now, there are some myths about planning. One is that it's notoriously stringent. In fact, if you look at the statistics, most planning applications are actually approved. So the, the consistent rates are over 80-90% each year, and that relates to tens of thousands of applications that are approved each year. I don't disagree that there's a need for sensible reform. Uh, and I think many of the points that Kelvin talked about are well worth investigating. We should be looking at these timescales for applications. We should be looking at the amount of information that's being submitted with planning applications. There are sensible changes that can be made. But most planning applications are and should be decided locally. I don't know if any of you have seen the government's infrastructure bill that was published in the past week, but we're concerned that 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 will actually take things too far in the wrong direction. If you look at one of the leading clauses in particular on, on allowing developers to apply directly to the Secretary of State to, for, for some forms of development, how, how are you going to make that clause work? You need to re recruit more quango crafts, more planning inspectors, and you need to hold more public inquiries. Is this really what the government wants when it's, when it's talking about attacking the deficit? And a couple of people before me have mentioned China. I don't want a Chinese planning system, thank you very much. The, the, the planning system that we have is, is hugely valuable. It gets the development that we need in most cases. It's not perfect, but I think that's the, the planning system that's nearer to what we need than the kind of system that's operating at the moment in China. What should we build? It, it's important to remember at this point that I'm going to talk mainly about housing here. Other speakers will talk about different subjects, but... Overall in this country, we actually have more homes than households in this country. Um, and, also, we, and also, most of the homes that we have in this country are, are actually have more space in them than the European average. There have been problems more recently with some of the quality of some of the newer housing that's being built. But we don't need to follow the example of Ireland or Spain and just cover the countryside in concrete. We do need more affordable housing, as Kelvin again has rightly pointed out. And it's also important that it's energy efficient housing and also we, again, we do need housing in particular for, for people to live in and adapt to as they grow. So 
that's housing that should be able to accommodate families. But also, we do have overall an ageing population in this country, and it has been pointed out that much of our existing housing, that there's a lot of space in it going to waste. We need to link housing to jobs, and, and so, in effect, we do need it to be, be properly planned. The government's talking about new garden cities. I think I would be very disappointed if, the, if we were to build new cities that look like Wellin or Letchworth, as good as they were in their time. But we've moved on a lot since then. We need to think about things about making homes zero carbon. We need proper transport systems. We need generally links to railways where possible, but also people need to be encouraged to walk and cycle more. So we're dealing with the wider problem of obesity at the same time. We should also make valuable use of our countryside. When we built well in and Letchworth, we weren't worrying about global population growth and climate change to the same degree that we are now. So if we are going to build new housing in this country, it does have to make good use of land. And so that's why we would recommend that things like the typical Victorian or Edwardian terrace, the Edwardian period in particular, is a good model to start from. We're not saying we should build pastiche of, of what went before, but if you look at places like New Islington in Manchester or some of the new housing that's been built in Barking or Camberwell or Lewisham in London, that those are well-designed homes which have front and back gardens but also have good access to public transport and that make good use of land overall. And it's important that they are in the right place. And let's be clear here, we still have plenty of brownfield land available in this country at, at the last count for over one and a half million new homes. And so when we're looking to build, we should build on brownfield sites first. Where we do need greenfield sites, we should make sure that important planning protections like the green belts and areas of outstanding natural beauty are respected. The green belt is a hugely valuable resource for, for London and all our other major towns and cities. It's got higher than average levels of woodland cover, higher than average levels of local nature reserves, and, a, and there's also a great deal of public access to the green belt as well, much more again, than people perhaps realise. So, so to conclude, we shouldn't just build because we haven't got any better ideas or, on how to stimulate the economy. The economic growth is going to need a, a wider response than just encouraging more building. We've seen the consequences in Ireland and Spain and in Greece too of what can happen with just indiscriminate building. We should build the housing that we need. We should, we should have smart growth and we should also build in the right places. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Paul. Christine, your thoughts? Okay. okay. So as mentioned, this year is the year that the least number of homes will have been built since the Second World War. Um, nevertheless, developers are actually sitting on massive land banks, not because they can't win planning permission for homes, because they already have planning permission for homes. They sit on them without developing them, because sitting on the land is actually more lucrative than building and selling the homes. Large-scale housing developers are currently manipulating the housing market by buying up large amounts of prime land and not building because profitability is low. The current housing shortage is a deliberate reduction in supply, and that is to artificially boost house prices. And this is by increasing demand. The number of young people desperate and unable to get on the housing ladder are a captive future market. So while the banks have adopted tighter mortgage conditions, and there's a recession and high unemployment rates, it's a toxic mix. This suggests the problem isn't with the planning system. These developers have already won the right to build. The problem is with the economy and with the expectation that big business will do house building even when the most profit is to be made by doing nothing at all. 
So planning is a red herring. Yes, build, but building isn't happening. So no matter how relaxed planning becomes, developers will still sit on land that is gaining in value without developing. Building is expensive. Why invest in a property if its value will go up regardless? House prices are low but will rise due to shortages as they are in central London. So developers won't build any new homes until the economy improves, mortgage lending increases, or house prices rise due to demand and short supply. So the frantic attempts to encourage building by relaxing planning rules simply exacerbates the current state of affairs. In the meantime, the lower cost of building is being lost out on by the government who could be building themselves. So given the current state of the economy, if we'd like to encourage house building, it either needs to be, the government either needs to build housing itself, tax the land being held by developers without developing to make sitting on land less attractive, or dramatically increase the amount of land up for development, which will drive down the value of land. So I wouldn't recommend increasing the supply of land because the economy and the environment benefits from high-density development, which is the hardest to incentivize developers to build. It's expensive and tricky to develop brownfield or inner-city sites. The planning overlooking neighboring issues are much greater, the access is trickier, and that's a more expensive build cost. So developers will only develop inner-city sites or demolish or refurbish if there are not easier places to build, and an easy place to build is in the Greenbelt. Taxing idle land is quite a good idea, but the current administration is unlikely to consider it. But if developers faced a rising penalty the longer they sat on land without developing, they would be forced to build. The third option, which is the government becoming a developer itself. The sell-off of the school playing fields is an interesting example of mismanagement in this case. Most of these sites will be bought by developers who will win planning permission to develop them and then sit on the land or sell it off with planning permission, having increased its value. So assuming the school fields should not have been retained for school use, the government could have commissioned an architect to design a development for the site, which included whatever units it wanted, affordable, housing, etc., and given itself planning permission for that site. Then it could have tendered the site to contractor developer partners under the conditions that the plans were carried out within a specific time limit and developed mm. under their specifications. If that sounds farcical, some local authorities have done just that. Brent Council gave itself planning permission for a scheme it developed with an architect and tendered it, and the housing has been built to its specifications and recently completed. Other schemes, such as Clapham One, developed by Cathedral, have adopted a clever partnership. In a PPP success story, Lambeth gave Cathedral the land to develop. They developed a block of luxury flats, but they also built a library, medical centre, leisure centre, and affordable units free of charge for Lambeth. On the one hand, localism should enable this kind of visionary planning and deal-making. But cash-strapped, staff-poor and time-poor councils often don't realise the power they currently wield. They use planning as a style-making process, enforcing the shape of a building or the colour of its roof, rather than ensuring that the public benefits from private profit-making in their area. So not less planning, but visionary planning. I have no objections to the cutting of red tape, but it must be replaced with intelligence. The trouble with the NPPF is that it's simply a framework, and it doesn't give a strong vision. Both the government and the majority of local authorities are being outsmarted by developers. They need to learn from big business and make the most out of the assets and the negotiating powers that they have. 
Take airports, for example. Three different plans for three different London airports are being speculatively drawn up by three different architects. But the government itself has deferred its decision on what to do about airport capacity until 2015. The trouble isn't a surplus of planning red tape, but a lack of vision and the lack of a plan. Okay, thank you very much, Christine. <coughs> Daniel, over to you. Well, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't know that I've got a lot to contribute to this. I didn't understand some of the earlier contributions. I did understand Christine's contribution and disagreed with nearly all of it, which has slightly put me off my stride because I don't know whether to deal with what she said or say what I was going to say in the first place. But um, I do think we need to start just de to deal with one point about Christine. We need to understand <clears throat> that we actually live in what is still notionally at least, a free country which has private property and where private property is the norm and where we protect private property. So the notion that is, seems to be shared by nearly all the speakers so far, that the predominant role in deciding what cities look like and what has to be provided in the future is actually to be taken by a relatively small group of people operating inside government, some planners and some others, and so forth, and that we, we doesn't, by the way, mean us, it means that group, um, that we decide um, what we need, we decide how to provide for it, and we deliver it, with no regard for the rights of private property, including the rights of the private property, incidentally, of developers who may have sensibly bought land at low prices so that they have something to build on in the future, just as you would expect any other business to try and secure its supplies in advance. That seems to me a very dangerous one. There's also, I think, a lack in the debate so far of a recognition of the enormous scale of the challenges facing us. Uh, we discovered in London, um, and most of my comments will be a little bit London-centric simply because I work in London government, so forgive that, but we discovered in London a few months ago that the population was probably half a million higher than we'd thought it was before. So we just add half a million people to the list and that we didn't even know we had. We know that it is very likely that the population of London is going to rise considerably in the future, in the, in the relatively near future. And that's largely, incidentally, through natural increase of birth rather than projections of assumed immigration, whether national immigration or international immigration. Um, it's to do with the demographic profile of the city. We probably need, at least in the short term, at least half a million new homes in London just to keep where we are. Um, we have a distorted market. We have a market where there is a relatively free market for privately owned homes. That is, if you own a home, it is relatively straightforward to sell it to somebody and you will achieve the market price, roughly speaking, if you're willing to wait and so on. It is a, a relatively free market. There's no market at all, uh, really, in what is known as affordable housing, um, and that has a stock that's in, that has a very large part of the housing stock in London and simply, simply sits there completely unexposed to market forces. But the part of the market that's most missing is a sort of assumption that, house, that new build in London is driven by market forces, whereas, in fact, having been on the inside of planning in Kensington and Chelsea for some years, I can assure you it is not, um, and that there is almost no uh, market-driven uh, activity going on at all. It's a deal. It's, a, cut, it's a, a deal cut between planning authorities and the owners and developers of land, 
whereby, irrespective of market forces, the goods, the, the, the produce of that land when developed is basically shared between the developer who's allowed to keep a certain margin, normally 20%. So they're not worried. They get their, their return. And, and the rest is largely taken through viability tests and so forth um, for, um, for the benefit of, of, of government in one form or another. And there's no market in that at all. So we have 500,000 homes we need and serious problems there. We need the schools and the hospitals that will go with the population increase that we're looking at, quite apart from the transport systems. And I could certainly tell you some of the things we need in order to simply get, in transport terms, in order in London simply to get those people from their homes to where they're going to work because they will need jobs. We have, and we largely don't talk about this very much nationally, but certainly also in London, a very severe and growing shortage of electricity. And we desperately need new power stations and new means of generating electricity. Um, and that is um, definitely also leading us into an area I'm actually quite neutral on, which is the form of that electricity generation and whether it should be nuclear or not. As I say, I'm not, I don't want to get into that, and I don't have a very strong view. But we have to confront that nuclear question if we're to address the issue of um, how we're going to generate the electricity that we need. We definitely need a new airport, and we have been avoiding um, making a decision about our, new, our need for a new airport for at least, um, well, since 1974, basically, because the Heath government in 1974 did actually pass an act of parliament to allow a new airport to be built at Maplin. So I suppose that was, deci that was decisiveness. That, that was the last time we saw decisiveness. Um, of course, it, the project was cancelled immediately on, uh, by the ensuing government pretty well um, after the Heath government fell. So nothing was actually done. But I, I suppose that is the last example of something decisive actually being done uh, and delivered. That's a small example of the sort of things we need. And then what is it that we have? What are the tools that we have to address these problems? Or what are the tools we try to use? The first is we have no money. And I don't mean to say simply the government has no money. I mean the banks have no money. And I, I was touched to hear a reference to the, I thought, largely forgotten figure of Friedrich Engels um, earlier in the discussion. Um, and the suggestion that in 1880, um, Engels was writing without the benefit of financial capitalism, whereas by 1980, 100 years later, uh, the whole thing had become much more complicated in that respect. Now, in fact, of course, if you look at the survey of London, practically the whole of central London was built out on mortgages um, by small builders, in fact, almost entirely in the same way that building takes place at the moment. And they were very often, there was an entire mortgage industry in the 19th century available to developers precisely for this sort of purpose. Nothing very much has changed in that regard. We have a host of restrictions. We have sites of special this, areas of special that. We have the green belt. I think the green belt has a value not in protecting the countryside, I don't think there's very much reason to protect the countryside myself, uh, but rather in protecting the city uh, from shambolic growth because cities do need to have certain levels of density in order to be effective as cities. And finally, we have the Town and Country Planning Act, the last relic of Stalinist notions of government. And you must remember all the other planning we had in the immediate post-war era. We were going to have, we had planned transport systems Freight was nationalized. All sorts of things were going to be planned. They were gradually dismantled. I'm there. They were gradually dismantled.
But what we did not dismantle and what we've not thought about looking at really afresh is actually dismantling the Town and Country Planning Act and thinking perhaps how other countries have done it. It was a brilliant piece of legislation in its drafting and that is why it has been copied in, that, in other countries and why it has lasted so very, very long. I'm absolutely willing to say that. But in fact, I think its time is past and we should be looking um, at the whole thing afresh. And to that extent, I am disappointed that the government is merely suggesting yet again some more tinkering with it. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Can I have a round of applause for the speaker? Okay, I just want to give the people on the panel uh, an opportunity to react to what, uh, to what other people have said. And uh, I suppose, you know, I'm hearing actually um, some profound disagreements amongst, uh, amongst colleagues on, on the panel. And I would like you to, to say whatever you want to in response to, to anything that's been said so far. Uh, but specifically, and, you know, in order to kind of help us kind of understand exactly where you're coming from, try and point really simply to anything that you strongly disagree with uh, that other people have said. So just to kind of help us kind of, uh, if you like, clarify the issues so far. And Kelvin, but anything you want to say? I think um, probably a slight, um, a slight agreement, even speak at the end of, speak at the, end of the table. Um, the, the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act was based on two utopian systems, one which was modernism, modern city planning, the other was the Garden City Movement. And both of them believed that you could control everything, believed that you'd, you'd have absolute control over the outcome of every single decision that you could make around cities. And cities are far too complex to be managed in that way. So I think deep, deep down the flaw in the system is not so much the fact that we have a system, but that the, that the roots of it um, believe that we could predict and plan everything. And that's quite a difficult, difficult outcome. I think the, the second point, I think picking up what, what Penny mentioned, is the fact that we are using instruments like master plans to try and determine outcomes of 15 to 20 years. The day the ink, is, the ink dries on the plan, it's out of date. Um, there's a fantastic saying by Mike Tyson, is that um, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And, um, and it's true, a plan is out of date the day that, you, day that you, you try and write it. So why do we have these instruments? Why do we believe that we can predict and plan everything? And therefore, why don't we rather look at what we need to do now to make cities much more effective? And that probably means that we need to move away from command and control to much more enabling leadership. And that has an implication on how we control things. There's an implication on the legal system, on the planning system. That's an incredibly complex set of issues. But the fact is that a lot of the, the crisis wasn't created by uh, the credit crisis. The crisis was there long before we started. It's been, it's been deep in the system for a good 20 to 25 years now. Okay, thanks. Penny? Um, I mean, surprisingly, you might find that um, I agree with the idea that we should liberalize the planning system. The reference to Frederick Engels was not a systematic uh, outlook which suggested a support for everything that had happened in terms of post-war Britain. Uh, I was making the point that Engels tri tried to understand a particular set of social conditions, and I think that our particular set of social conditions were explained extremely well by Christine in terms of outlining what the economic restraints are on the production of new houses now. And I think, I mean, that, that's the difficulty, isn't it? It's sort of we can have a discussion about what we would like to happen, but in our heart of hearts we know that there's a whole set of forces operating that are way beyond our control, and we can sort of push and sort of uh, suggest certain ways in which procurement could be changed, in which the housing crisis could be alleviated. 
but the reality is that um, we expect the private sector to deliver these things, and even they, with the best will in the world, can't control the environment in which they operate. Um, so in terms of what, what I think we do need, and I would agree with this point at the end, I think we do need to liberalise the planning system. It has become uh, a mechanism for development control. It is not about planning. And we need to encourage the, the politicians to be more strategic and ambitious in their plans for infrastructure. And if we could have a more ambitious attitude towards infrastructure uh, and a more liberal attitude towards development, I think that that would be a very positive thing. Okay, um, Paul, there is a risk here, isn't there, of, of, of us all kind of uh, racing to agree, and yet there are some, some real kind of deep-seated um, differences of opinion here. The governments should build, uh, the government shouldn't. Um, the, the, we, we need to deregulate the planning system, we don't. Um, we, need to kind of, um, we need to kind of get under these things, I think, and to draw out some of the differences uh, in order that we can, we can discuss them effectively. But, Paul, um, any you know, comments on anything that anybody said, uh, but please do kind of help us kind of draw out some of the differences. Thanks, Michael. We'll continue to get planning reform. It's, it, it's surprising that in probably the past 10 years we've seen more changes to the planning system than we had in probably the previous 40 or 50. And... And again, that sensible reforms can always be made. But, but I think going back to Daniel's point about do, do we let the market decide more, I think it's always going to be difficult to really work out how much influence the market's purely having. But if you, if you look at what's been happening in America over the past 40, 50 years, the sheer amount of urban sprawl that's been happening there, because the planning system there has been much less regulated, it, it's led, led to huge losses of farmland. It, large areas of the country, large suburbs that, where people are just completely dependent on cars to get around. And I think the planning system in this country has always been a mixture, I think as Daniel's rightly pointed out, between what local authorities want and what developers want, and, and it's always going to be a compromise between them. But, but I think we, do, we can and should be insisting on, on the best quality of development. If you look at countries such as Germany, for example, which is probably had the strongest economy in Europe over the past 10 or so years, they, they have a very strong planning system. And it hasn't stopped them delivering the new homes that they need, and it hasn't stopped them delivering very good quality new housing. If, for example, if you look at places like Freiburg, for example, the new extension to that city that they built. Christine. Uh, what to add? I'm always heartened when people... Did you disagree with anybody? Do you think anybody, any, anybody said anything that you strongly disagreed with? Strong. I like being strongly disagreed with, so that yeah. was good. Um, did I strongly disagree with anything? Do you want to uh, I think deregulate the planning system? I, I don't have a problem with less red tape, but I do have I do have a problem with a lack of ambition, which I think Penny mentioned. I don't I think sometimes privatization or depending on the private sector can make sense, but I think sometimes it's just indicative of a kind of laziness or lack of ambition, lack of vision, um, also a kind of political scapegoating, because then if the private sector doesn't do it right, you can't blame government for it. So I I mean I think that's probably where the fundamental disagreement lies. Is um, is that I I think the private sector is obviously ruled by the need to make a profit every year um, indefinitely and a greater one, um, and you can't rely on them to necessarily make long-term visionary decisions. Okay, Daniel, anything you'd like to respond to at this point? I am heartened that most of the speakers actually call for more ambition. There is clearly a role for government 
in providing and facilitating at least um, a certain amount of necessary infrastructure um, in order for us all to be able to do what we want to do. But I do think it's worth remembering and really looking at, and the, I, I chastise the academic world for not wanting to look at this, the fact that so much of our infrastructure that we rely on today was actually built by the private sector and private money. That includes the railways that we rely on, it includes the um, London Underground, uh, which was almost entirely built by private money, not the farther extensions into the countryside, what was then countryside, but certainly um, most of um, the core network was all built by private money. We call it money laundering nowadays because we never knew where it actually came from and what's wrong with that, uh, and so on. And why, you know, it seems to me that there are opportunities for understanding why that worked then and why it doesn't work now, but people don't seem to want to analyze that or work out what that... Um, what has changed that makes that so different. We make the building of infrastructure extremely expensive by various uh, means. Um, and again, we need to understand why that is. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, folks, it's uh, now your opportunity. Um, so, uh, yes, on the, uh, uh, yes, you're at the back there. To build or not to build, there was a really interesting show a couple of years ago on telly called The Secret Life of the Motorway. I don't know if anyone saw it, but it was um, looked at the evolution of the motorways and the planning challenges that they face. The final episode was on protests, and uh, as part of that, they talked to um, a, a couple who had protested successfully against a bypass in Vauxhall in the 70s um, on the basis that they wanted to preserve the neighbourhood for future generations. Um, and it asked them at the end what they thought of their legacy. And uh, they said, well, look around. And what it showed was them and uh, the main road full of cars going nowhere. And I thought, thanks. Um, but th to me, that was a really good illustration of how um, sometimes uh, views against, uh, arguing against uh, bold uh, development uh, are often couched in long-term thinking, but are actually really quite short-term in their thinking about human quality of life and um, they're, they're unimaginative in terms of how things could be better. Okay, gentlemen in front of you. Just a couple of fact, um, you know, figures. Built-up areas of, of England, built-up uh, built areas and gardens in the last uh, Centre for Ecology and Hydrology uh, land survey, which is fairly authoritative, is 8.9% of the land area. 10% of, of UK of English land is actually restricted from any kind of uh, development by being areas of outstanding natural beauty or national parks. Now, we have to stop pretending that we live in a country which is overrun with urban sprawl, right? 52 million people in England live on 8.9% of the land. For the population to double, <laughs> it would still mean that less than 20% of the land area would be built up. Right? So I think although it's very nice and pleasant to have a debate which seems to think that there's probably a good uh, reason to have more building, uh, first of all, there is simply no case for having a complicated argument about release of land. Quite simple. We should get on with, uh, and this is in the context of what is effectively becoming a crisis of urban space. Land or uh, population density in, the, in England has risen over the last 10 years. Yeah, something like 240, 100 people to, uh, 240 people to, per square kilometre. It's now going up to 258. It's obvious that there is a serious problem, and talking about the niceties of design, uh, good design, good urban planning, and so on, is a complete conceit. 
And one of the problems is that it's always the case that people who are in charge, or people who think they're experts, always seem to think that it's their business to solve the problem. In fact, the, sol the problem would be largely solved if people in um, uh, local government, government, even uh, all the various kind of extensions of regulation, legislation, policy, would just get out of the way of ordinary people to buy land and build on it. And that's quite simple. So I'd like to know whether the panel are you know, equivocal about releasing land and building on it or not. Okay. Uh, I, I suppose I'm going to say something similar, but I, I feel that um, uh, there's something uh, kind of bad faith in the planning profession. Having been writing and arguing about um, the shortage of homes for, well, 12 years now, and I can tell you that whenever it's raised, uh, it was invariably the case that, uh, as it was, for example, in the Barker Review, uh, when uh, John Prescott was making his speech in 2005, when we were talking about Gordon in 2003, when uh, Gordon Brown was talking about eco-towns, to a, a man and woman, uh, planners got up and said, you know, we really don't need these new homes. And, and, and they said over and over again to me and to everybody that would listen, uh, there is no shortage of houses. There are empty houses, uh, they would say, pointing to some derelict shack over there. Uh, and uh, there is no problem with the planning uh, system. It's working fine. And now we are down the line some 12 years, uh, and there is an absolute shortage of homes for people to live in. And that is why in Newham now, people are living in garden sheds that have been converted, why the local authorities are going around uh, looking at uh, over-occupied um, houses and amazingly knocking them down. Uh, and over and over again, we've, we've seen the same kind of mantra that um, uh, this uh, entirely fictitious uh, uh, green uh, England uh, that simply doesn't exist because none of us ever spend any time there, as you can tell, uh, uh, must be protected against what? Us, you know, God forbid... That, uh, and people have the absolute nerve to call us human beings sprawl. When you say, I'm going to home people, I'm going to give them places to live, you, you could dare to say with the content dripping from your voice that that is sprawl. You, all of London is sprawl. Every city in the world is sprawl. Every uh, uh, inner city began its life as a suburb. You don't house people without building houses. And uh, it's just absolutely wrong and malevolent and wicked to say that the problem is developers sitting on land. It's completely uh, fictitious because there would be no possibility of developers sitting on land if the uh, planning system itself were not so onerous that only the very large developers were able to bid for and to take control of those large land banks. If ordinary uh, uh, small developers were able to compete, if they didn't have to spend millions on lawyers to get the planning permission, uh, then those land banks wouldn't be worth anything because people would be able to build uh, uh, where they could. That is the problem. Okay. Let's just take some uh, quick kind of uh, responses to those points from the panel and then I'll go out again. Most of our large sites are tied up, as, as Christine said, in the hands of few people who are not building. Um, you've seen the largest developer in London only building 200 houses a year, but we need 32,000. You know, that's on one particular site. So I think there's, a, there's an issue there, and, I, and it comes back to the, the, the instruments we're using. Greenbelt policy was set up with good intentions, but it's actually worked against the principles of good urbanism. 
A green belt should be managed exactly the same way as a city should be managed. We should look at limits of growth. We should look at expansion. The idea that build on a brownfield site only is an absolute anathema to me. What makes us think we can go and build on a former airfield site in Oxfordshire village and call it an eco-town and call it sustainable? You know, we should be turning those sites back into green land and looking at our, our expansion of our city in a creative way around infrastructure. We should be looking at public transport, setting up the networks, and from that, defining the growth of our city, like most other good cities plan themselves. So we're using the wrong instruments all the time. Once again, good intentions, but with incredibly bad outcomes. Um, yeah, I don't dis disagree with what James is saying. I think, though, that then there's a danger in that discussion that you get caught up in this idea of dispersal is better than density. And um, the people that sort of just want to tinker with the planning system are in favor of denser development, and the people that uh, want to uh, eradicate a lot of the regulations of the planning system are in favor of dispersal. And I think, again, there's a danger that we sort of end up in a design discussion where the key question is the political question of, of the, the regulations. And um, I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying about sport, but I think you know, the, the, there's a prior problem, which is that if you are going to extend development in the countryside, <coughs> then there does need to be a level of investment from the state in order to make that feasible and manageable. And that's the same problem that you've got in Britain as you've got in China. Uh, and the Chinese have the resources to do these things. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they have the resources. And it becomes really the capacity of the state to finance the, fr the framework, the development in, in that situation, uh, which becomes the, the critical question, I think. Okay, Paul. <coughs> Thank you. Yeah, some interesting points, though. We, we'd agree, certainly, that there has been a problem that's arisen in the recent years through the large house builders controlling the release of land, and they've been doing it more and more, and figures that we put out have shown that, that leading house builders have become more of a, almost, some might say, a cartel in recent years controlling release of land. But I, th I think we would diverge quite significantly on the solutions to that problem. I, I think <laughs> think a couple of points I'd make is that you mentioned the point about 8.9% of the land area, whatever, whatever is built on. That may be the case, but I think it does need to be put into context. In particular, I just wondered if you knew how much of London was built on, for example. Well, how, how much of London is considered as, as urban or built on? I think there was one other point I wanted to make about the motorway process. And, and, I, and I think it's important to recognise when we're talking about the planning system generally is that it's, in this country, is that democracy is an important part of how the planning system in this country works. And what had happened up until the 1970s was, was that you did have a series of a small cabal of experts actually saying we need new roads here, there and everywhere. And it got to the point in the 1970s where people were saying, no, it, it is actually having major effects on, on the places we love, the places we want to keep protected. And to give an example from Far Eastern country, Korea, which I visited a few years ago, they, they had a massive four-lane motorway in the centre of Seoul, which they actually ripped up and they actually turned it into a lovely blue river garden. And it's well worth visiting if you've ever been or get the chance to go. And I think that actually shows that if we'd gone down that road in this country, we'd have had to probably pay an absolute fortune to rip all these new shiny motorways in the centre of London up and uh, restore them to what they are now. Christine? I think um, I'm hearing that uh, investment in infrastructure as being key uh, to developing anywhere. 
um, and encouraging. And, and that tends to come from, I think, this point about it being private sector built uh, private money that was used to build infrastructure is an interesting one. I think the idea, um, I think what I'm often interested in is, you know, a solution that causes some kind of short-term reaction. Um, and I'm not sure we've come on the panel to, to, to something that we could, you know, go away and someone could feasibly do that would begin on the road of fixing that. So I think, I don't know, that's, that's not really a, a point, but I guess it's just a, a frustration, again, with this same one coming from here where there's a lot of theory, but what will actually get building happening? Um, well, feel free, though, to kind of... Uh, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm, not I'm not convinced. I, you know, I do think that relaxing planning would do it. I'm not convinced that would actually cause these kind of smaller developers. I'm not sure the land is there that's getting picked up. I'm not, I'm not convinced that, in, uh, that any of us have come up with an idea that tomorrow will cause uh, building to start happening again. Okay, Daniel. Um, well, I thought I was a little bit radical, but the three speakers we've had so far have been uh, much more radical than me. Um, tear it all up, start again, keep building, release more land, um, and get rid of the green belt, um, and so on. So that's good, and um, I think probably there's a lot to be said for what's um, just been set out. I think we do, however, have to recognise not just, as I said earlier, the scale of the challenge we face, but also the scale of our failure to date. Because while it's true that we have devised a system um, which protects, if that's the right word, uh, rural England, um, and which uh, makes it extremely difficult to build any new piece of infrastructure unless it is a government project, unless the government is behind it, we've done all of that, and the result is that we have a severe housing shortage, we don't have enough electricity, we don't have enough aviation capacity, and we see no means of resolving it. So I do think that some radical solutions are required. Okay, can I see who wants to speak? At the back? Uh, Nico MacDonald, I'm co-author of Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation. One term we haven't heard very much in this discussion is, is innovation. I think Penny alluded to it when she talked about standardization of components for uh, housing and building and so on, which I think is a very interesting development that you can download the spec for something and install it and add it to a, an electronic design and so on. She also alluded to a change which is taking place as a result of information communication technology, which is the changing use of workspaces to urban spaces and vice versa, which is having a profound effect. And I'd be interested to hear more about what we can do today. We couldn't do when the Barbican was built and other large urban developments around innovation and particularly information and communication technology. What potential do we have in, what do we need to design? How do we plan? How do we construct? Uh, and how do we live and work in those spaces? It seems to me there's huge potential which is untapped uh, if we can use technology in a, a humane and ambitious and visionary way. Thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah I, mean, I think it's, we could have... 3D printers printing modules of uh, different parts of homes or complete homes. If we, no, I think that's 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 good. And if anyone doesn't believe that there is a need, there's a manufacturer of chicken coops in Yorkshire that is selling more chicken coops to London than is being than houses are being built in London at the moment. So, and the chicken coops are not holding chickens; they're being put in back gardens for. For, for, for people to live in. And so there is a need. 
I think that there's been, a, you know, the talk of planning, at the beginning it sort of came across to me a bit like a parliamentary committee, you know, some of those that I've been to in the past, that the misuse of the term planning, you know, it wasn't until people talk, started talking about creative planning and innovation and infrastructure and how to achieve that that I, I, that I felt uh, things started, the discussion moved on a bit. Planning is so often seen as get the planners off our backs, as David Cameron says, and it's just regulation. Uh, and to that extent, if I was a developer, I mean, I, 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 I've been a planner all my life, and I've been fight, you know, fighting and negotiating with shyster developers all my life. But I have to defend them to the extent that to build is extremely difficult at the moment, for it, even for the biggest volume house builder. To to open a site uh, in, in, a, in a city, in a town, you have to comply with over 26 pieces of primary environmental legislation. And you need handbooks this thick in order to uh, print them out. Uh, let alone, that's after you've got planning commissions with all the conditions and after you've paid off all the third parties and so on. So, to, so, so you know, I've got some sympathy for entrepreneurs and developers actually want to and I want to move on from that to the point that, well, no one's used the term freeholder. We used to be freeholders. Owners of property and land used to be able to pretty much do what they wanted. And they negotiated with each other when they wanted to develop their land. And that negotiation was either cooperative or it was uh, uh, collaborative or it was confrontational and you went to law or you fought them off or whatever. Now it is all litigious, the lawyers... The Town and Country Planning Act, the, the, the develop, rights to develop were nationalised. That took that uh, constraint, uh, uh, the constraint on freeholders to basically say, you don't own your land anymore. You don't own the right to develop. And from that point on, successive Town and Country Planning Acts have uh, meant that environmentalists, uh, campaign groups, amenity societies all have claims on the right to develop your land or I tell you how you should do it, uh, town councils, parish councils, and so on, now localism, and so on. But they're all telling you how to develop your land. Uh, and I've got some... Uh, the reason I'm putting it in this way is that, actually, you know, there's, there, there's a sort of freedom that's been lost there somewhere along the line. There's a sort of freedom to develop that we lost somewhere along the line in the 20th century, which must be around uh, particularly the time of the... Town and Country Planning Act and the need for the state to take over the, the building of uh, infrastructure and housing. Now that developers are finding it extremely difficult to develop, well, we've got to remember that it's not the first time in history, from 1939 to 1984, no private housing was built in London between 1939 and 1984. And so, you know, we've had periods before when the state has had to intervene, and if we need to Demand that, let's demand it. Okay, uh, yeah, in front. No, I just really wanted to pick up on something Penny mentioned earlier on, which is this thing about it being um, integrated with finance capital. You know, it's, it's so complex that uh, this is uh, the criteria in which we're, we're, um, we're having to, to operate. For instance, um, in July, the Bank of England issued a statement uh, about uh, quantitative easing, which um, really was, appeared to me anyway, to be unofficially the, the, the government policy on, on the economy being, being presented by, uh, by the Bank of England. 
And basically what they were saying, they mentioned housing, they mentioned house prices, um, <clears throat> and keeping, maintaining high house prices was seen as a success, a sign of success of quantitative easing. That, that was explicitly mentioned in there. So, you know, there's clearly something else going on that isn't just about the physical, getting on with physically building houses. We also in, increase the supply of housing, we're going to see a, a fall in prices. And, and that is something, it appears, you have to read between the lines because nobody's going to tell you this explicitly, that the government doesn't want to see a fall in prices, presumably because there's some equation that, that some very clever uh, economists has got to look at the situation of the banks uh, and, and uh, their exposure to, to a fall in those prices. So, for instance, we're told that, um, um, you know, uh, we've actually done better than other countries in the financial crisis because countries like Spain and Ireland who, who actually built houses, uh, they're suffering more than we are because they have this great overhang. We're far, you know, we haven't done as badly as them. Unfortunately, it seems that we've just put off uh, things that are going to happen to them because as soon as we start building, uh, presumably there is going to be this problem. I just wanted to mention the, the other th uh, uh, aspect that's come up sort of in the, in the last six months, the comparison with the 1930s, um, where, <clears throat> you know, obviously after the Wall Street crash, you, you had this fall in prices, which was more, you know, allowed to happen. And on the, on, uh, following that, the private sector during the 1930s was building 300,000 homes uh, a year, was, was, you know, sort of allowed to get on with it. Uh, the state did step back uh, and, and, and allowed that to happen. Um, and really, when we're talking about a situation like we have today, where not only have people not got anywhere to live, but they, they, they haven't got a job now because there's no economic growth, you know, that, that was clearly a, uh, you know, on one comparison, the 1930s uh, policy was more successful than the one that we're following today. So um, obviously you have to nuance that a bit, but there's something to learn from that. And I think uh, the, the way I would pose it is, uh, with a question, you know, why can't a, a, a farmer uh, sell their surplus land to a developer just to, to build a house on? Why is that so difficult uh, a, a concept for, for us to um, envisage? Okay, this lady here. Uh, when the government threatened to relax the planning rules, I immediately joined CPRE and demanded expansion of the, of the green belts and no building on floodplains of any areas that are risk that are short of water, which includes London. I've seen the drains you wouldn't want to build there, really, or any green space. Now, in the 1970s, I was the director of a construction company. We had a visit from the VAT man. And guess what? There's no VAT on new build, which of course builders like greenfield sites. But unfortunately, we cannot support, we can only grow half our food. We cannot support more than 30 million people in this country sustainably. We need some bright innovation for perhaps a higher rise, but if you're doing it, I want to see some green spaces in it as well and some trees. We have too many people, but I want those green, every blade of grass protected. It's a bit of a remark to Paul Minor. Uh, you talk about like uh, our irreplaceable countryside, but as far as I'm concerned, like the countryside's always like being replaced anyway. Uh, an example being where I live, it, it's a beautiful kind of place, but 
you, you take a, you can imagine the place being it's like dark and industrial at one time because it's all ex quarries, ex railways, uh, and stuff that was part of the industrial revolution. And now it's it's entirely unnatural. It's all man-made, but like nature's sort of like taken over. So uh, I don't get the idea that like uh, nature is irreplaceable. And back to this lady here who talks about uh, every blade of grass being uh, sacred. It, it seems, I mean, this la this whole lack of vision thing. Anyway, you, you're getting stuff now like we've got uh, supposed drought condition, uh, conditions, but like huge amounts of rainfall. We need vast amounts of development infrastructure as well. We need to be building reservoirs and, and all that kind of thing. Anyway. Okay, so if this were a parliamentary select committee, we would um, deregulate the planning system, the wide consensus, we'd get rid of the 47 Town and Country Planning Act. Uh, we, would, we would invest in the, uh, massively in infrastructure, and we would focus the government <coughs> in that direction, and that would unlock uh, innovation uh, and it would unlock uh, creative design and planning with a small p. Uh, would become a creative endeavour, and there seems to be a kind of huge uh, consensus around that in the in the room, and it's extremely appealing to me. And just like you know, uh, like it does kind of leave the kind of question, therefore, about about why this is. Uh, why this is not happening, and I, you know, if, if, if anybody wants to kind of uh, to, to kind of talk about talk about what the what the barriers are to that kind of dream scenario, uh, then it'd be interesting to hear. But I'd now just like the panel to say uh, any uh, closing comments that you'd like to, starting with you, Daniel. Um, yeah, I just had a thought actually, which I throw at Paul. I think Paul's been a bit battered in this because there hasn't been much sentiment in favour of protecting rural England. Um, in the room. But it did just strike me, Paul, actually, what you did, I mean, given 1914, something like 50% of the workforce was engaged in agriculture, what you did over the ensuing 30 years was simply export your surplus population to the cities, get them into council estates, and then put the signs up saying, now we need protection. I mean, maybe, maybe what we should be doing is a sort of enforced return of the surplus urban population just drive them out into the countryside and let, and let you look after them. And so maybe, maybe, maybe that's the way we should be going and you could, you, could, you could handle the problem out there in the rural parts of England. I don't, of course, mean that seriously if there are any journalists in the room. There's a hint of irony in my, my voice. But it has it just strike me in the course of the debate that that is actually really what happened. I just want to come back to this idea that I think everyone who's spoken, really, with the exception of this fine lady in the front, whom I have encountered before, I think I've, we've met Madam at some other um, event, um, uh, most of the people in the room, I think, do recognize that we do have some serious problems and we need some radical action to, um, to address them. And um, in this respect, having a coalition government clearly doesn't help, um, where, you know, they can't seem to agree on anything uh, except that they should decide it after the next election. Um, and that's um, a really depressing and sad place um, to be. Okay, thank you. Christy. So, <clears throat> I just wanted to talk a little bit about design. There was a question about innovation, and um, uh, that's something that we haven't or touched on slightly. I think, I think most of the design innovations, we've kind of thought of them already, you know, this idea of a flat-pack home or et cetera. I think, I think there's a lot to be said 
for how people would like to live. So not to say that architects can't come up with new ideas for how we live because we can, but actually there's quite a fixed idea amongst much of the population of how they would like to live, how they picture themselves living. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the size of the home, where it is, how dense it is, whether or not it has a garden, um, where it's located, how it's connected. And and it, it's it's just... There are many new developments that are doing innovative things that attract a certain kind of person but don't attract every person. So perhaps there's some thinking to be done about um, how do we think people in the future in this country, families, you know, what what size is the right size, what density is the right density? Um, should we be rethinking what we expect when we have three children, what kind of a house that looks like? what kind of a neighborhood that looks like. If it is the current picture, then it has to be a suburb. There is no, there's not really another model, I think. I mean, uh, there, the population that actually will accept a kind of tower living with a green space downstairs is not as large as the, the population that kind of chooses to move out of a city center when they become a family. So I think just, just a, a question about um, about what does it mean uh, to be you know a 21st century citizen? Um, what do you ex- where do you expect to live and what does that look like? I think it needs some reevaluating um, amongst the general population. Okay, thanks, Christine. Paul, <clears throat> thank you, Michael. But well, just to sum up from some of the last comments we were talking about, uh, in terms of population, I think. The issues of what population this country has or should have in the future go well beyond the concerns of particular environmental groups. It's a much wider political issue that we can't really comment on. But the fact is, is that if we are going, if we are having an, a growing population in this country, then the way we're, that we, we're going to have any hope of absorbing it is probably by consuming less, because most of the natural resources we have in this world aren't getting any more plentiful, and we have to make more sensible use of them. And that does have impacts on how we plan for the future. And it goes back to what I was saying before, that, yes, the government's been talking about new garden cities, possibly going back to the garden suburb model. But if we are planning major new cities, then we need to think about making use of land that's already developed. If that's not available, then at the very least, we need to be making sure that the new development we're building is zero carbon and is also encouraging people to make lifestyle choices which, which are sustainable in the long run. Um, there's this great picture that Bramsey, who I mentioned earlier, produced. I think it's him in Archizu, the Italians from the 70s. And there's a picture of Florence and the Duomo, and you see it, and it's like fantastic. We recognize it, we know this skyline. And then there's this great big sort of megastructure that goes all the way up the top of the Duomo along, a bit like Rem Koolhaas's CCTV thing in uh, Beijing. And it's very interesting because I kind of wish that my students would sometimes be that aggressive in their imagination to produce a similar kind of image, but they don't. If you tell students now of architecture to be radical and imaginative and really get to grips with the problems of the contemporary city, they will design allotments, and they're absolutely obsessed with the idea of introducing uh, allotments and agricultural production into the city. Now, that is a really big problem, which we are slightly in denial about, I think, because 
The reality is we cannot call it a sort of say, oh, silly old Paul who wants to keep the countryside, but there is a real crisis of imagination at the level of uh, the design profession at the moment. And I suppose that's why I'm trying to sort of say, let's separate those two things out. I would like a double-decker London that is denser, and I would like to see more freedom for development in the countryside. Both of those things are absolutely necessary to resolve the problem, but I wouldn't want to sort of say one is preferable to the other. But I know that the levels of growth in Britain at the moment make that absolutely unlikely to happen. The question is, how do you then create a culture where people can imagine the possibility, regardless of the material conditions that are imposing constraints. Because if people could imagine the possibility at the level of designers, then it might give people a little bit of a kernel of an idea of how we might move forward. And then we can fight politically about the economic questions, about whether you know, buildings get procured or not. But if we don't do the design side of it as designers, then we're just going to end up with more of contemporary urbanism, which is basically just about trying to sort of control the city and uh, express, is expressing a real anxiety about a sense of loss and an anxiety about if we do anything radical in the city, there's a danger that we're going to lose the social stability we have. And I'm dead set against that kind of attitude because I think the new urbanist sort of let's play it safe so we don't get more riots and let's try and use architecture to, as a form of social control is very, very dangerous. Okay. Calvin? Uh, I agree with that. Um, I... I also believe that um, if, if we think that by dismantling the planning system we're going to solve the problem and we sit for another five or ten years waiting for it to happen, I think we, we won't achieve it. I'm, I'm rather in favor of evolution rather than revolution. Paul mentioned uh, Freiburg. The, the German planning system is as, as rigorous as ours. In fact, there's more legislation. But they just behave differently. They just, they just manage the system differently. A bunch of planners are given freedom to go out and make common sense decisions. They don't follow policy EN4 or policy DC5 or something every, every minute they look at, a, look at a plan. And as a result, the mayor of Freiburg will get up and say, well, I don't care. I don't want my guys to go and sh make sure that these guys lose flush properly. I expect people who invest money and time in their own buildings to make sure that they lose do work. So this idea of just a good, sensible dose of common sense uh, needs to work. I think the other thing is that I think we do romanticize um, high-density urbanism. Um, and the idea that high-density urbanism equals sustainability is also uh, an anathema. Um, Stratford High Street, if you go look at the moment, uh, is, is a manifestation of high-density going wrong quite badly. And most successful parts of London exist in that sweet spot of about 50 to 150 dwelling years per hectare. The Islingtons of the world, the Kensington, the Chelsea's. I live in Marylebone at 280 dwelling years per hectare. So this is not high-density in terms of high-rise. It's actually just good, dense, compact urbanism. And I think that's the message that I'd like to get across. Suburban, sub suburbs is a, is a bad word. Suburbs differentiates good bits of urbanism from, 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 good, from, from bad bits of urbanism. And I think we must almost dump, dump that word. Sub meant abnormal in some ways. Uh, we don't build suburbia in the way Americans build suburbia. So, I mean, I start from the point of view that there's lots we can do with the planning system by just working with it and tweaking it and, and you know, evolving it over time. I think we do have to have some sensible um, common sense when it comes to the green belt. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, um, an approach that says don't touch, you know, keep cities as static things. Cities are not static. Cities evolve all the time. And therefore, our planning must move closer towards a business planning approach than something that effectively says we'll, we'll go back and revisit this every, every 25 years and, and put a new plan in place, which we know is out of date the day we, we produce it. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, can we have a round of applause for our speakers?